Hello, I'm Howard Ryland. I'm the trainee editor of BJ Psych Advances, and I'd like to welcome you all to the inaugural Advances podcast. I'm very pleased to have here with me today Dr. Annie Swanepoel from the Evo Psychotherapy um, Study Group at the Tavistock. And Dr. Swanepoel is also a consultant at Hertfordshire Partnership uh, University Foundation Trust. Annie, welcome. Thank you. So today we're going to be discussing a paper from BJ Psych Advances written by Dr. Swanepoel and others from the Evo Psychotherapy Study Group looking at how evolutionary theory can enhance our understanding of childhood attachment. Annie, could I ask you to start just by telling us a little bit about the work of the group? Thank you. The group was convened by John Lorna, who is a systemic psychotherapist and a GP and a lifetime honorary consultant at the Tavistock. And he wanted a multidisciplinary group. And he involved Daniela Seif and Michael Rice, who both have an anthropology background. Um, Graham Music, who's a child psychotherapist, and Bernadette Wren is a psychologist, and I'm a child and adolescent psychiatrist. So we meet on a monthly basis in order to think about whether evolutionary theory has any relevance to psychiatry and clinical practice in general. Great, thank you very much. Now, for centuries across human culture, people have debated to what extent our behaviours are determined by our inherent nature or whether they're more shaped by our environment. What is the current situation with the nature versus nurture debate? At present, we realise that both sides are correct. Both nature and nurture are correct. And over the last few years, we've realised that they are inextricably linked, especially through the science of epigenetics, in which we know that the environment can directly influence the access to genes, where genes can be switched on or off and that this can even be transmitted down generations. So it sounds like modern science is really giving us some fresh insights into what is a, an age-old debate. And I think what people have often asked is how can seemingly pathological behaviour that causes great suffering ever be considered adaptive? The main point to understand there is that natural selection selects for people up to the reproductive age. So as soon as they have reproduced, the genes are transmitted and life goes on. So any disorders which arise after reproductive age are not selected out through natural selection. So what that means is that people will survive and can survive even with great suffering and with serious mental and physical health problems past the reproductive age, in old age, and that that is something which will not be removed through natural selection. And your paper focuses on the other end of the, the life spectrum on childhood, uh, and in particular on attachment theory. Could you just explain a little bit about what attachment theory is and how can an evolutionary lens help us to better understand it? Attachment theory was first developed by John Bowlby 
and he developed this to describe how the bond between a newborn and the mother, usually the primary caretaker, is absolutely essential uh, to for the survival of that newborn. He linked it to the uh, to the past in which people used to live in the evolutionary past of two million years, which he termed the environment of evolutionary adaptiveness. And during this time, he said it was especially essential for a child's um, survival for the mother to protect the child against predators and to provide for the child. And that in order for the child to know whether this whether the environment was harsh or whether the environment was benign, uh, the mother's actions would give that child the information so that children have adapted to actually use the way that they parented in order to prepare them for the environment they're likely to be exposed to. I, I think some people might argue that humans have in many ways been removed from a lot of the evolutionary pressures that they used to have to deal with and that animals are more exposed to the the pressures and therefore actually by looking at animal behavior we can gain useful inferences about human behavior do you believe that's the case and how can that be applied to attachment theory well, I believe it is certainly the case that one can study animal behaviour because one can study that in controlled ways in laboratories and um, manage the reproduction and the transmission of genes to the following uh, generation. One can actually set up experiments in order to test hypotheses, which one can't do with humans. But just to get back to your earlier point, just because humans are currently perhaps not dying or um, child mortality has come right down in developed countries doesn't mean that we have changed the way we work because the genetic changes over evolution happen over very long time periods thousands of millennia in contrast to epigenetics where changes can be transmitted from generation to generation so it's not as simple as that to escape or evolutionary heritage. No. You talk about the role of fear in your paper and I think fear is an example of an aversive experience but one that has uh, quite obvious advantages for survival. You know, For instance, fear of snakes and their subsequent avoidance of contact with them can be quite easily understood as something that would improve an individual's chances of survival. But what is the role of fear in attachment? The experiment we refer to in the paper um, is by Michael Meany, which is a very well-known experiment where they cross-fostered pups from rat mothers who tended to lick and groom them a lot uh, to mothers who didn't lick and groom them a lot in order to show how those pups who experienced a very good mothering and parenting um, developed sphere systems which were not easily triggered and which very quickly returned to baseline. Because whereas pups who did not receive that kind of consistent good parenting 
were much more likely to develop sensitized fear systems and were um, very scared. And the thinking uh, around those experiments is that the, if mothers were the, the rat mothers in nature, would not be licking and grooming their pups for much of the time if it was a very harsh environment with lots of predators around. And that would then lead the pups to have heightened fear systems, which would be adaptive, because once they were exposed to that dangerous environment, they would be able to hide away and to, to seek cover and had a better chance of surviving. Whereas in benign environments, if the rats were licked and groomed a lot because their mothers were relaxed, they were then less fearful and more able to explore, which would be adaptive in a benign environment because there would be fewer predators around and the chances would be that they would have a better survival that way. So not all environments are equal in terms of the pressures that they exert and the responses that they elicit. No, that is really the main point of our paper, is that evolution does not only prepare us for the optimum. So we know that the thinking is that it's ideal for children to be raised in an environment where they have plenty of resources, where they have carers who are loving towards them and supportive, and those children will grow up to trust others, to believe in themselves, to be relaxed, and that is, is, is a good thing that's adaptive in a benign environment. But the point we're trying to make is not all environments are like that, and evolution doesn't just prepare us for the optimum. So in situations where carers are very stressed, where they are dismissive, where they might be hostile, the child would learn to be self-reliant and not ask for help. And that is adaptive in a situation where there's nobody around who can help you. It is in, uh, important for psychiatrists to understand that because we often get these children uh, at a much later stage. So when they aren't being treated with their parents anymore, and it's important for us to understand that the children's way of understanding life has been shaped by the early parental environment. And the children who had dismissive parents or hostile parents might find it very difficult to trust others, including ourselves. And just understanding that can help us decrease blaming and shaming and can help the patients have more compassion for what they've been through and why they are the way they are. That's, I think, a really nice way of putting it, that it's actually a way that you can increase the compassion that you have for your patients or for fellow human beings. I wanted to ask a little bit more about a concept um, that really fascinated me that you introduced in your paper of slow versus fast life histories. Can you just explain a little bit about the difference between the two of these? Okay, in the slow life history, that is really the kind of history which is most adaptive in a benign environment. So that would be where there's plenty of resources, where parents are relaxed, and in that kind of situation it makes sense for people to wait until they have the time to be more choosy about their partners and to, to delay uh, reproduction until they're ready to have fewer children in whom they invest considerable resources. And that's a slow life history. In dangerous environments where 
the chances are that one could be killed before reproductive age, it makes sense to actually try and have a partner as soon as possible, be less choosy, um, have children quickly and have as many children as possible. As previously in, in times, child mortality was as high as 40%. And in those cases, it made sense to have as many children as possible in order to at least have some surviving ones. And at the moment, one can see that in different areas of the world, even in different boroughs in one city, um, people can follow uh, different trajectories depending on their social and psychological environment. Fascinating. We've talked a little bit about how different environmental experiences can lead to different responses from um, groups or populations, um, but given the huge variation between individuals, are there some people who are going to be inherently more susceptible to the effects of environment than others? Yes. So we know that everyone is uh, adaptable to the environment. But what's very interesting and what has only been researched in the last decade or two is the differential susceptibility. So that some children are even more susceptible than most. And initially we thought they were just more vulnerable to harsh influences, difficult environments, but it's become clear that they are also more sensitive to good environments. And the metaphor that's used is uh, that they are like orchids, whereas the uh, less sensitive children are likened to dandelions. So we know that dandelions can thrive anywhere. They can grow on gravel, they can grow between bricks, so and they can grow in rich, fertile soil. So it, the environment doesn't matter as much. They can thrive whichever way things go. Whereas the orchids are much more sensitive and they need very good care. But once they've got that, they can flower exceptionally. And that's the, um, we know that, that some genes are linked to that, um, especially the serotonin transporter gene and the dopamine receptor genes. But there are many other um, genes which have been explored and which are being explored. Thank you. I think that's a, a really evocative metaphor and it goes to show that actually it is a, a complex interaction between both the, the nature and the nurture. Thinking about something as complex as psychiatric disorders, which cause so much misery, how can evolutionary theory be applied to determine possible hypothetical advantages which might help to explain the persistence of these illnesses? That is something which we have touched upon in this paper and which we're planning to do in a bit more detail in subsequent papers. So if one takes something like ADHD, children with ADHD we know that they are hyperactive, inattentive, impulsive and one can imagine that in some environments in the evolutionary past it might have been advantageous to take more risks, to explore further and that, that is why these genes still exist. It is also understandable that those kind of, of traits which might be adaptive in some situations 
can be extremely detrimental in others. For example, children with ADHD today are expected to be in school, to sit still, to pay attention, and that is not the kind of environment they can flourish in. But that's something we want to explore in a further paper. We also touched upon um, depression. So Randolph Nessie, who's a leading uh, evolutionary psychiatrist, has stated that depression is perhaps a way of letting people understand that the goals they're striving towards are not reachable and that they need to stop and rethink. But we are not endorsing any of these views at the moment. We are just saying that there is evolution can help one take a wider perspective and avoid a reductionist view. Sounds like very fertile ground for future thinking and future research. Finally, I'd like to ask you what you would recommend as being take-home messages for uh, clinicians about using evolutionary theory to enhance their own understanding and their own practice. I think that in psychiatry our view of what is normal is too narrow. I think we need to broaden our view to include the reactions people have had to develop, um, the ad adaptations they've had to develop to difficult and harsh circumstances and to not necessarily see their behaviours of excessive fearfulness or um, distrust or even violence as necessarily pathological, but to see it as adaptations to a harsh um, environment. We are not dismissing the fact that that can lead to considerable suffering, but what we are stating is that from an evolutionary point of view, it is better to survive, even if you ha are suffering, than to not be able to adapt and to die. And we think that this broader viewpoint might be helpful to clinicians to be more understanding and compassionate, but also to patients in order to see why they might still be following self-defeating strategies, even though that their environment may have changed just to be, for them to understand that their early childhood experiences have primed them. And the, the one concept which we often use in child and adolescent psychiatry is that of double deprivation. And that is where children who never had anybody they could trust develop a mistrust in people in general. And that is adaptive while they are children. If they were too trusting, they might be more open to abuse and exploitation. But it can later be a problem if they are in therapy where the environment has changed. They now have somebody whom they can trust, who wants to help them, but they can't bring themselves to trust them. And these children are depriving themselves again later on in life. And if one can be able to explain this to patients and to say, look, the reason that you don't trust anyone is understandable and it was adaptive. It was a very good thing that you didn't trust anyone given your early environment. But now things have changed. It might help put things in perspective for them as to why they have such strong feelings and how they might begin to overcome them. That's a great note to finish on. Annie, thank you very much for sharing your thoughts with us today and shedding some light on how we can use evolutionary theory as a lens to 
gain greater insight into psychiatric illness and especially thinking about childhood attachment styles. I think it's really reassuring that evolutionary thinking, which can so often be misunderstood as being simply the survival of the fittest, can actually be used to increase our compassions uh, as both clinicians and also as human beings. Yes, I think the, it's really important to point out that survival of the fittest is very often misunderstood. So what Darwin meant was it's survival of the best fit, so that those who fit best with their environment are those that survive. And people are misinterpreting that now and thinking that the fittest is the one who's strongest or best. And that's not true. It's the one who's best adapted to their environment. Great. Annie, thank you very much for joining me. It's been a pleasure. Thanks.